Hello, folks, and welcome to another Loft Podcast. Noliantos here. We have in studio uh, Jim Stewart of True Ventures. He's the COO, his lovely wife, Vicki, and uh, an owner-operator of CJ1 with Tamarack Winglets. And we had a great talk. Um, just had some questions about how it is that he weighs both uh, owner-operator and um, his company adventures. Uh, we enjoyed it. Had a great time. Hope you folks enjoy it. So, Mr. Stewart, I specifically, after I typed you, I specifically told you to stay out of the clouds. <laughs> nice try. I did. <laughs> nice she try. She was walking out the door. I said, don't fly in the clouds. It's really simple. <laughs> I, I, I say it to almost everybody, and nobody listens to me. <sighs> you came in in the worst weather, the worst weather possible yesterday. Yeah, it's a good thing I had some training, huh? <laughs> well, welcome. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. <clears throat> you are what we call in the industry an owner-operator. And I'm excited to have one of those. I'm delighted to be here and even a single pilot owner-operator, perhaps the riskiest characters on the insurance curve. I didn't say that. You said no, that. I know, I know. My agent might be listening. <laughs> what, uh, what got you interested in the, in the jet side of stuff? Because I know that that was not uh, really on your radar until recently, correct? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I was a happy, you know, turbine, Meridian guy. And in fact, I know you guys have transitioned a bunch of Meridian guys into jets. And as much as anything, you know, as Vicki and I sort of looked at where we were in life and said, uh, you know, if we're going to do this ever, the reality is now was the time. It, it, it is never uh, easy to rationalize the spend on airplanes, frankly, at any level. Mm -hmm. But uh, at, at my age... We're going to so edit I'm, that out later, by the way. Yeah. yeah. It, it, at the age I was, sort of mid-60s, the answer is the insurance companies have a, a sort of a strong point of view and in many ways sort of drive your transitions. And uh, waiting until we could easily afford this uh, started to look like too far down the road. And we said, <laughs> now's the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And your lovely wife, Vicki, is here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I want you to weigh in. If he says something that's not true, you say something. Yeah, when you get into that cloud stuff, she'll have a point of view. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. So... Um, the essentially when you first started flying the jet, um, what did you just instantly see as a difference from what you'd been doing years prior to that? Yeah, so I would say the most important, and this is after I got out of the sim, which is is frankly a different experience we may talk about. But once I got into our aircraft, the most interesting initial things that hit me, um, quiet, I mean, much, much better from a noise and sort of a workload point of view and a wear and tear point of view. So pressurization system better, noise level inside the aircraft better, performance obviously better, but not so starkly diff different that it was difficult to fly, which was also kind of, oh, wait a minute, you mm -hmm. know, the speeds are not all that different. Um, the workload's not all that different. I'd been flying a lot of IFR flying, so I was prepared for all of that. And that's and, what we tell a lot of people too, make sure you show up with a good IFR set skill. Yeah, by the way, the best piece of advice that you and the team here gave me, which is come in very current and very experienced on the IFR side, so we don't have to teach you how to fly instruments right. again. Right. Um, so I would say my initial my initial impressions were almost all around, holy smokes, this thing really is what was advertised. The workload's higher, 
And I would say the speeds, um, particularly as you approach arrivals in airports, was probably and, and remains one of the things that I work hardest at. Right. Yeah, indeed. And that's uh, any issues with the higher altitude? portion of it? No. In fact, um, you know, I was flying the Meridian at uh, 28,000. I'm flying this plane uh, going east at 41,000 because we've got winglets on it. We can get up there in the CJ-1. I would say the altitude was not much of a transition. There's there's obviously a few things you want to be prepared for planning and obviously being very proficient in oxygen because you don't have quite as much time if something goes wrong. Right. So I I've probably worked harder to be more current on that. And the the plane suits that. It's got you know quick don masks that are very accessible for both Vicky and me. Right. Right. And that's yeah that's the whole part of that process. Yeah. That's one of the things we talked about on this podcast before too is the the that element that rapid decompression. I think it surprises a lot of people that. Um, it's it's not like holding your breath. You no, know, if you have a rapid decompression up there, it literally sucks the air right out of you. Right. And that's uh, that's that's pretty different thought process. On uh, well, you know, at twenty eight with the Meridian too, you're still you're still featuring some removal of air from your body. If you yeah, we actually had a depressurization in the Meridian, Vicky and I together at night over the Sierras. And Do tell. It, Do tell. It, it captures your attention. Do tell. I'm interested. Yeah. What do you got? So we had uh, we had an ECS system failure on the Meridian at uh, 280 coming home from the East Coast. I don't so know what that is. Long... I, I, don't, I don't fly props. Yeah. <laughs> Just stay away from them. The jets are better. <laughs> you don't have to whisper, uh, Vicky. You can yeah, say something. You can sneak up closer. <laughs> it, it, it was um, it was interesting, right? So the, the depressurization was an issue, and we quickly went down and declared an emergency and did what we needed to do and stabilized things. But the distraction and staying focused mm-hmm. and staying on task became, in fact, the real challenge, right? right? That was the only, in the end, that was where the real danger was because the systems recovered pretty quickly as we went down and okay. we still had a lot of altitude on our side, but it was dark. We were IMC. It was busy. Over the hills and in, in a single engine airplane. Yeah. 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 That's another reason to have two engines like a jet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I say. I've had lots of engine failures. I always had another one. Vicky's gonna weigh and she's, Vicky, point, go, she's go. pointing her finger at me. I know. Me. You don't you don't you don't have to raise your hand, just talk. Just back up and tell them I was in the back of the plane oh, with the yeah. dog because the dog started whining. He knew there was something wrong with the plane. He never whines. You're making that he up, Vicky. J- no. That didn't happen. Yeah. He was sitting in the back going, and Jim goes, why don't you go in the back and see what's wrong with the dog? And he's a 65-pound dog. Really? So no kidding. I went back. I'm sitting with him, and kaboom. That's incredible. The loudest That's a great story. <laughs> and the two of us dove onto the floor, and I hung on to him and just took tiny little breaths. And I'm going, oh, great. We're going down. Oh, jeez. We did better than that. The good news is she's here to join the jet experience, yeah. so we're all good. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was, uh, it did, was did eerie. Air, did you get the air? What, what was wrong? So it turned out there'd been a valve in the environmental control system that had failed. Um, and, and in fact, the emergency bypass in the Meridian, which is actually quite good, um, ultimately was able to recover. So we stabilized at 20,000. Uh, so gotcha, so okay. we were able to sort of, you know, manage the drama. But donning the quick don mask, which is dramatically more difficult in the Meridian than it is in the Citations. They're, yeah. they're easy to get to. They're right, you know, literally at your fingertips in the, Meridian, in the Citation. Was, you and, know, they're, op- and they're 30 grand. Yeah, they're expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but we got two of them, and we love them. Yeah. Opening the cabinet, finding it, getting your glasses off, in the dark, losing your headset. I mean, right. it was it right. was all of the normal drama. But but I got on the oxygen quickly. We got it stabilized. We talked to ATC, and we, we got it. It was literally the longest two or three minutes that oh, I'd yeah. spent in a while. Yeah. Yeah, we had a rapid decompression in a Hawker jet, and uh, I still have the mask in my office that saved my life. Copilot yeah. didn't get his on, and he, he hit the— He went to sleep. He yeah. went to sleep. Yeah. But it's uh, yeah, it's a scary, it's a scary thing because it, it, it does. It, it, we've talked about it before that any any emergency, you know, tends to focus and tunnel vision you, 
and you just don't realize what it actually caused our rapid decompression was is we had a, an engine that exploded on us. The N1 compressor, or the N2 compressor section let go and actually put shrapnel into the side of the fuselage and then depressurized the airplane at like 38,000 feet. Yeah, that's and, with passengers uh, on board. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was a charter. It was a charter. And, um, you know, what, what I didn't realize was the cause. So I thought it was a rapid decompression and treated it as such, you know, without realizing that the engine was blown up and on fire. So it didn't, and the lights, the lights were right in front of me, telling me the thing was on fire, the bell was going off, and I just didn't see it. Just never even occurred to me that that was happening, and my brain didn't let me see it because I was so intent on getting the airplane down into breathable air and out of the clouds, and uh, just didn't even see the fire. Didn't even see that. You know, it's interesting, Noah. One one of the things, and I talk to a lot of non-flyers that I work with. Um, I, I I have I'm good good fortune of having a boss who flies a Conquest and is shopping for a CJ, and we'll be down here training soon. I Excellent. Hope. Well, Conquest um, is a great airplane, though. That's a oh, monster. he loves he loves it. He's, CJ's hat twice as easy to fly as that thing. Oh man, it's it, that's exactly right. I told him it's going to get easier for you, but but one and of the slower citation slower. Yeah, piece of cake. <laughs> But I was telling him that, uh, you know, when I'm talking to non-pilots, they always want to know, gee, how dangerous, how scary, how, you know, it's really frightening. I said, no, no, it's actually not. It's a game of concentration. So planning ahead and being a half a step ahead, and, and if something comes up, which inevitably it will on many flights, mm -hmm. the trick is to not overreact. I think some instructor a long time ago who was ex-Air Force told me, when, when something hits you that's really spooky, wind your watch, right? You're not right. probably going to kill yourself winding your watch, but whatever you do next just might. So yeah. it was advice I got, you know, 20 hours into my yeah. training a long time ago that I've never forgotten. Yep. I got an old salty captain in America who said the same thing, just light a cigarette, smoke yeah. a cigarette back in the day <laughs> when you could actually do that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's nice too that, you know, the airplane that you're dealing with, and that's um, that's CJ, CJ-1 with Tamarack wing lights on exactly. it, correct? Yep. And that... That airplane was, and we were talking about this the other day uh, with somebody who was asking the questions, the Citation, the CJ lines, were really designed for single pilot start to finish. You know, the 500 was kind of an afterthought, which is why the 501 came out and then obviously followed by the single pilot waiver. But the CJ was, from the ground up was designed as a single pilot airplane. And the simplicity of the systems that, you know, most of the time your input is not necessary, nor required, nor wanted. And even as you go into the, the bigger airplanes, the Gulf Streams, you know, the modern Gulf Streams, they, they don't want you touching anything. You right. know, these systems are self-correcting. They do everything themselves, essentially. And I think that's the way things are headed with the modern aircraft. And I, I think that's good because, you know, the last – somebody was asking me, well, give me an example of that. And I said, here's, here's a perfect example. In the CJ, if you get a firelight, memory items are to take the throttle and bring it back to idle, right? Yep. That's it. If the light goes out, you're good. Don't do anything else. That's what the checklist says. That's what the memory items say. Nine times out of ten, I'll watch a pilot shove that throttle back up to see if the light turns back on again. Now, it doesn't say to do that. No. But that's the pilot mentality is I want to fix this thing. I want to make sure I understand what's going on. And therefore, I'm going to start immediately going outside the box. You know, if we were to do that at the airlines, we would have gotten slapped and hit and fired. You, yeah. you follow the QRH to the letter. But it's interesting to see that that more thinking taking place in that the FAA, the way that they're training now under the ACS, the manufacturing are taking us away from that, wanting us to do less in the airplane to fix a situation as opposed to more, which is interesting to me. You know, it'll be nice to see how that goes, especially with these modern aircraft that come out, Phenom, you know, M2, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's interesting when I talk with some of my airline buddies that fly or people that fly, uh, you know, crew airplanes, so two pilots up front. 
I get a bias to, you know, staying very sharp on rudder, stick and rudder flying and, and sort of hand flying the aircraft. And when I was getting trained, and this is my practice for sure today, the notion is, you know, as I'm climbing out and I've, I've got a busy departure at the airport where I'm based up in the Bay Area, north of San Francisco, um, it, you know, on autopilot at 250, let's get all of the tools that I've got as a single pilot working for mm -hmm. me. So 250 feet, I, you know, autopilot, you dampener on. There are many who view that as sort of poor discipline because, in fact, you're going to lose your sharpness flying the plane. And what I've explained I, to them, I'm, I'm one of those. Yeah, there, it's okay. When I get far <laughs> enough along, but what I've explained to people is, at my skill level, the answer is having a tool in the box that makes my workload come down and lets me focus on, you know, altitudes and speeds and headings, and I'm below Bravo airspace and on and on. That's and a great on. way of looking at it. It's yeah, a, it's, and it's a it's a different way of looking at it as opposed to what we complain about is using the autopilot to save you. Yeah, you know, and at 250 feet, you're just so scared to turn the autopilot on. But that's not the point you're making, and I think it's a great point that. You know, the Cessna designed it that way. They want you to use the autopilot. Yep. It's required in order for you to operate the airplane single pilot. So yep. why wouldn't you use that tool? The amount, I don't think a pilot really realizes, and since we're in the training environment, we see it all the time. I see how much the autopilot saves on brain space. So if you've got a pilot hand flying that thing, I don't care who he is, you know, 20,000 hours or 500 hours. It's monopolizing a great deal of your brain space when you're hand flying the airplane. It just it just does. Be, the inputs that you have to make watching your what used to be called the six pack, which is now for us just one television screen, is I'm I'm, I'm talking double digit space. You know, yeah. 25, 30 percent of your useful ability to do something different and multitask is being occupied by your hand flying skills. Yeah. So turning on that autopilot immediately frees up double digit space in your brain. Yeah. And you see it all the time. So I, I like the way you're saying that. And I, and I like that what you're trying to do is bring in without is as much experience in the jet to use the tools available to you in the aircraft in order to accomplish that task. And I, I like it. I think it's great. Yeah. One of, one of the other things, and we talked about a little bit in training, but even as a non-pilot, Vicky is enormously valuable in the right seat, right? So when I'm cross-checking 70 knots on the departure, We've got a system. In fact, Vicky just went thumbs <laughs> yeah, up. She did. Yeah. That, that, I, I don't need a conversation, but what what I get from Vicky is a thumbs up that you know the airspeed. Well, it sounds indicator. like the dog is even in on the action. Oh, the dog is the awesome. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dog who, is your co-pilot. Who to bet on that? Right. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so, as an owner operator, the question that comes up a lot that I don't have an answer for because that's just um, not a part of my purview is you use this airplane for business as well. Correct? I do. I do. During the business day, it affords you an opportunity that cannot be accomplished on Delta. No offense to Delta. Yeah. Um, however, at the end of the day, when you are tired and thinking about work and thinking about everything else and, and at the high level that you are with a lot of things riding on that, how is it that you can separate those items, climb in the airplane, and safely get yourself back home to point B? How do you do that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I tend to make the judgment that flying at the end of a work day is a bad idea. So I usually initiate any- Vicky, that was a trick question. I, I yeah. wanted him to say that. Yeah, good. Thank you. <laughs> Dodged a bullet. So, so some, I, of, some of these are landmines. Just yeah, so you know. that problem I, I stay away from just by, by practice. And, and, it, and I work for a bunch of guys that say, look, take no risks, right? We want you home. Right. But at the end of the day, the bigger issue for me, and this is this is improved in the CJ because of its speed and its capabilities from a, a distance and a duration point of view, 
is I have tended to extend the workday even on a long leg. So as an example, I do East Coast travel and did it in the Meridian. Well, if you're coming home from New York in the Meridian, you're doing three fuel stops <laughs> yeah. and you're going to fly a 12 to 14 hour day if the winds are rough. And so in the CJ, that's an eight or nine hour day. And so I would say there's been a major improvement in my ability to concentrate the time. Now, there's still time differences in time zones, and I'm careful about that. But at the end of the day, that's significantly improved in the jet. So lower risk for sure. So a short version, is it more often than not just an overnight before you start off for, for home? I'm often in the East Coast for at least a couple of days. So the time zone acclimation usually gets done over two or three days. And I will often be starting, typical start time for me coming West is 7 a.m. East Coast, which is four in, four in the morning here. So if you're coming into the West Coast and you're landing at, you know, in the dark at six or seven o'clock because you've had a 14 hour day, even with the time zone change, the workload on the landing is busy. Okay. And particularly at the airport where we're based now up in uh, the north, which is Hayward, the workload on the approach is heavy. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult Oakland, San Francisco, everybody. Yeah. yeah and it's a busy GPS approach. Not all GPS approaches are created equal. And that one is particularly difficult. They bring in high, they bring in late. And so yeah. doing that with, you know, 12 hours of flying behind you, that's not ideal. Well, you got 750s, right? Yeah, Thomas? I do. So I do. What are you complaining about? <laughs> By the way, moving from a Meridian back to the Pro Collins, as much as I'm learning to love the Pro Collins, yeah. and I've got the 750s in a JetTech uh, STC, which is the, I'd say, state of the art of what they're yeah. doing in the CJs. Yeah, that's a, it, that's a great combo. The ProLine 21 with a Garmin is a great combo. It's a good combo. The only, And this was probably the area of most um, difficult learning with my mentor pilot because he was not very good on the avionics. He just had never worked it. Oh, yeah. That can and be tough because that's that's half the battle in that airplane. It absolutely is. And the JetTech STC, while it's, I think, well done, it's it's effectively tricking the autopilot into getting a yeah. faux ILS signal. Right, right. Which, is, which, which adds to the buttonology to get it to work properly on a GPS WAS approach. And I would say that getting that perfected and reliably so I could do it nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 in a row right. was actually the most difficult time during my mentor flying. And is that, and again, I'm speaking out the side of my, my face here. Is that, that also has to do with that low GPS button as, as well on the, on the Garmin, right? That, you got to be careful right. with that. That's the one gotcha in that. That's right. They call it the killer button, but okay. yes, you have to flip out of GPS mode into VLOC. But the trickier part is that in the Collins side, the autopilot was not designed when there were WASP GPS approaches. Right. So you actually you're, have you're creating a false glide slope. You're creating a false glide slope, yeah. and and it is it is very fussy about exactly when and how you can do that. Yeah. So it took me a few approaches to get that right, and now it's you know it's nailed. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, I I think we would all agree that that's the direction everything's headed. You know, yeah. these precision approaches to points in space are just wonderful. Yeah, know, they're as really, opposed to they're, ILSs and everything else. And they, you know, I time and time again we fight that a lot here in the difference between green and magenta needles. Right. You know, green being the old VOR and then magenta being the GPS. We have more and more pilots now not switching off of the GPS on VOR approaches, um, even localizer approaches, because they're so in tune to that overlay. Uh, they're so in tune to the GPS. Fact being more accurate. Yeah, they even the are. ILS localizer. Not, not legal, but nice and accurate. Yes, yeah. So I we get the overlay. So one of the things that we do too is just to to continue that thought process. Is we have the ability to lose RAM on the GPS, and so if we see these guys consistently doing overlays and having something else up in the cockpit that shows the VOR, we'll consistently turn the RAM off, and they never notice because you <laughs> you're so you well. If you're so else. if you're so in in tune to but trusting that thing implicitly. Yes. You know, when the when the government recently has been turning them off quite often, 
Yeah. Going no, to buy like some restricted zones. All of a sudden, I saw both 750s caged the other day over Salt Lake. Gone. Salt Lake is exactly the location. We had this happen. In well, they're fact, blocking it. They're, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're testing it. it. Yeah, they're it testing it's amazing how stupid you feel when you can't intercept a localizer because you haven't done it in 11 months. <laughs> it's like, it's like really? You know, this, you know this is being taped, right? Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> We're not doing Salt Lake anymore. Salt, to speak of high-density, holy oh. crap, airports going in and out of. Holy moly. I don't miss those days. The two toughest approaches I've had, in fact, Vicky and I together have been in Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't doubt that at all. Um, the one more thing I wanted to key on on that, uh, the owner-operator um, curiosity is, so it's got to be difficult, though, at, you know, 38,000, well, I'm sorry, you got Tamarack Wind last year, but 41. It, you know, you're sitting there at cruise for hours on your way to the East Coast. You've got to be thinking about work. You have to be. Or, or are you able to, to separate those out? Or at that point, are you comfortable enough now in this airplane to where you can think about work at cruise? I occasionally will do text messages. If you come across some of the sites, you'll get text messages. So sometimes I can clean up a little bit. But frankly, I do very little of that. I, I view my job to be sort of focused in the moment. So for me, better to put some music on. If, if I've got blank spots between changing across ATC frequencies, and, and frankly, in this aircraft, you're changing out pretty regularly and you're giving progress reports on the weather. And, you know, the nice thing flying up high where the airliners do is that I think the, the the normal flying public don't actually appreciate how much work is going on between the aircraft uh, pilots and the ATC to look for smooth air. Uh, you know, we don't care too much about it because the the CJ is frankly very good in turbulence. So we let's 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 admit let's admit some airlines are a little yeah, more picky than others. Yeah, some are better than others. <laughs> some yeah, some doesn't bitch care. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so I don't have too much trouble staying away from work. I've actually thought about and rejected the idea of onboard Wi-Fi because I think it's just too big of a temptation to spend your time saying, hey, not much going on. Let me do some email or let me do some text messaging. So I've thought about it. I've priced it, and I've, and I've concluded that's not a smart answer. I'm, yeah. I'm down you in You mean 10000 bu- $10, bucks a minute? It wasn't doing nah, it for you? Nah. Well, plus you're down in you know, this plane. <laughs> You're on the ground and yeah, call it three hours, three and a half at most. Yeah. And the answer is the emails can wait three hours. Yeah, that's true. We, we actually, about early days of charter for me, when this stuff start, first started coming out, we had several clients that just didn't know any better. So they'd be streaming Netflix back there. Oh, jeez. <laughs> get, they'd get the bill and realize that the daughter just spent, you know, 12 grand on a, on a <laughs> Hannah Montana video. <laughs> Ouch. That's pretty entertaining. Ouch. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Way to read the fine print. <laughs> I think it's a little more reasonably these days, but yeah. still pretty un- unpleasant. By the way, Noel, while you're on the subject of owner pilots, I would tell you one of the most interesting things about moving into the jet world um, is that is that stuff you thought was very straightforward about uh, how do I take care of this plane? Who works on this plane? How that do was going to be my next question, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's like of, of all the organizations, and God bless them, if, if you can find somebody at Textron who can answer a question – you've accomplished something close to a miracle. It's a huge, complicated organization. And yeah. do I have to talk to Williams about my engine problem or do I have to go through Textron first? And I would say for the first, uh, you know, and I've had the plane now for, uh, what, two months, three months? We got typed this summer. Um, that has actually been a remarkably painful process. So yeah. you're I, not the first one to complain oh about God. that. I will say that in the early days too, when they first started this, you know, they had Team CJ, well, they still have it, Yeah, Team CJ and such. And I can say that, a lot of questions that we would have here from um, operators or owners, or whatever the case may be, those folks were brilliant. I mean, oh, by they, the way, they are they are a bright, shining light. In fact, yeah. I had a 
you who tortured me with those damn enunciator lights, you'd be very <laughs> proud of me. So I got the right hand fuel bypass light oh boy. in the descent coming right. out of the East Coast DC going into our first fuel stop. Which right. is you, not, know, you know there's no light that's called that, right? Yeah, whatever it's called. Yeah. <laughs> no, the one you know we have people that listen to this podcast yeah, and actually know that that's not an enunciator yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever the one is telling me it's bypassing on the fuel, fuel filter bypass i believe is what that there you line go. is we'll talk about that but there. it did say right hand okay good yeah there you go so so as you know and and i was very diligently following my checklist mm-hmm. which you trained me to use very good and sir. vicky was of course watching like the evil-eyed co- co-pilot that she is and it's a remarkably short checklist that says, beware, you're probably about to lose an engine with contaminated fuel. Very helpful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah very, very helpful. helpful. And then, oh, very by helpful. the way, beware the left side since the fuel's likely shared. Don't don't move any of that right-hand fuel to the left side because that might make right. things even worse now you lose two engines. By the way, as a side note to that, or and I don't want to digress too much, but as a side note to that, that's one of the reasons that the FAA, too, is starting to have uh, us as examiners – really institute the scenario based yeah because if you if you ask a question that says you got a fuel filter bypass light and you've been at cruise for three hours or you're taken off out of Texas in the middle of August after having a you know load of gas put on and you get two of them those are two totally different discussions right. same light same possible issue completely different causes yeah. yeah which is why the checklist isn't going to tell you that either yeah. you know but you you now know, that if you've been at cruise for three hours and the light starts blinking at Could you, be some ice? it's absolutely ice. You know, I mean that's just that's a no brainer. So, so, so you want the you want the punchline? Sure, I'm, I'm all ears. I didn't mean to address too much, no, no, but, no. The, but that's it, why also too that training is very important. Yeah, and that and that aspect. So so ice. In fact, te- the reason I brought it up is Team Five Two Five or Team CJ were, were extraordinarily helpful. So we land in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, going okay. Vicky's pulses come back down to something closer to normal resting pulse, and we're trying to figure out what to do. And as you would guess, the answer is, you know, sump, sump the tanks to make sure that if there's water in there. Yeah, we replace them all the time. They, yeah. They get clogged. And it turns out, um, they said, sump it, put fresh load of fuel in, head west, beware, mm-hmm. and, and but okay to fly, which we did. Next leg, no issue. Final leg into Hayward, same enunciator light. Uh... So it turns out, after talking to Textron, Textron said, throw all the fuel away, toxic waste, get rid of the whole tanks, whatever you got left. I and, agree with that assessment because you don't know what you're dealing with. So Williams said, nah. Don't do that, and and I'm on uh, I'm on Tap Elite, so uh, Williams's maintenance well, program is managed by Textron. Right. They said and you uh, don't really own your engines. Yeah, no, no, you never own the <laughs> which you is don't great. Want to own the engines I don't, on the which plane, is great. Right. Somebody asked me the other day. They're like, "Why is that airplane seven hundred grand?" I said, "Because there's no engine program. Yeah, you, you, and and you, you don't you eat a motor, it. and it's a half a million bucks." So so Williams had had problems with the pressure sensor up near the fuel filter. And in fact, changed the pressure sensor under my engine program. Problem gone. Really? Was Interesting. Not, it was not fuel. Interesting. Very bizarre. And nobody we've had a lot of them in the straight CJ. We're not up to the one, but in the straight CJ, I've had three or four instances where we actually had to replace them. They just get clogged up. They just, you know, there's, yeah, I mean, there's little micros, you know, organisms that live in that jet fuel. And we made a mistake too. We were doing some low level training for uh, a while. And so in our, again, getting back to my original comment about thinking outside the box and not doing what we're supposed to. We weren't adding Prist for a while. Oh, geez. Well, yeah. what we didn't realize is, hey, guys, it's not just ice. It's microbiology. Yeah, it kills yeah. the – so what we did was is we were running for a while without Prist, and then we added Prist. Well, now you got this explosion of dead microorganisms. Bugs. All the dead bugs clogged the filters. So yeah. we had two two instances of both lights turning on for the fuel filter bypass. But but huge kudos to Team 525. Those guys are brilliantly talented. They've got all the manuals. They've got all the schematics. They know those airplanes. And yeah. they are on call 24 hours a day. They have been a dream to deal with. Excellent. And it's worth putting up with any other administrative nonsense to get to them. <laughs> 
So who's doing uh, up where you are, um, service center? Do you have uh, an outside yeah. source that you use? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I have opted so far for service center. Um, I actually am fortunate in the FBO where my plane, uh, our plane is based, there's an MRU, one of their mobile repair oh, good. units that's Excellent. based there. Yeah. So there's a slight upcharge for you know them having their van doing the work, but that's been a direct connection with Textron, and so I'm, I'm getting the benefit of Textron mechanics. Um, I, I will have little small things done at Mather, which is an approved vendor for both Williams and, and Cessna that are on the field. But, but by and large, I think the pedigree of the plane is, you know, improved if you've got um, sort of text drawn behind the service record. And uh, so far, that's been a good solution for us. Excellent. Excellent. And then the, the one, and I, I got off on a different topic there, but I just wanted to circle back around on one more thing on the owner-operator side. Um, you holding the position that you do at your company do you have insurance issues with carrying other folks on the airplane with you? How does that work? Because I know we had back in the day, you know, the um, in and out folks, you know, rolled up, yeah. went upside down and killed yeah, all yeah, the yeah. upper ups. I so, think the insurance companies decided that wasn't such a hot plan. Yeah, it's a great question. So so we're careful about insurance. So as you know, I'm a senior guy at a venture capital firm up in the Bay Area, uh, sort of on the operations side, not the investment side. So I've got good personal coverage with the normal carriers, and we've got overlay insurance at the venture fund level because I'm, I am often traveling on company-related business. Right. The insurance company, interesting, has not mandated that I don't carry other people, but our, our policy, um, more from a protect our investors and don't take undue risk, I don't fly my other partners in the aircraft. Gotcha. So they're, they're not welcome as passengers, and I politely explained to them that it, it would be A, unwise, and B, not probably a good idea from an insurance point of view. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. So how how long do you think, if you decide to retire at some point, uh, maybe you don't, but if you do decide to retire, do you think you'll keep the airplane? I think uh, with this aircraft and the OPEX, it, the reality for me is that um, I will keep this aircraft as long as I am working. I would say um, that when one of two things will happen, if I ended up, I don't have a plan to retire because I'm, I'm working with a great group of people and I love what I do. Right. So that's not really on that's the That's a common term. tale, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that, that in the event I end up not being insurable, which in this aircraft means they're going to make you plug some smart young lad in the right seat. Um, I would say that no longer would meet Vicky's and my needs for flexibility, and the aircraft would probably be sold. Got it. In the event I decided to retire, I don't see myself keeping the plane um, because my business use case and my reasons to travel would diminish. And I, I've sort of got a mental guideline that I'll watch over the next year or two of flying. I don't think I feel comfortable in this aircraft if I'm not doing 150 hours a year. That makes sense. Um, 200 is better. I'll probably do 200 year one. Right. Um, I'm already coming up on 100 in about four months, but that's got all the mentor flying time, so I've been working it hard. But if I'm not flying 150, I don't think I would feel on top of this aircraft. Right. That makes sense. I've seen we had uh, somebody similar to yourself who did end up selling and, and exiting his company. And he immediately sold the airplane. And I asked him, I said, you know, you still travel quite a bit. You have homes in several different locations. Uh, what was the impetus to that? And he said exactly what you said. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to stay proficient unless I'm coming to training every three months, which no offense, Noel, I don't want to do. Um, I, I just, I know, I yeah. know that I can't. And I really thought that was a good heads up play because even though he may wanted to keep the airplane, the convenience of it, I mean, we would all agree there's nothing like it. Yeah. Um, it just it wasn't practical to the safety side of it, and I, I get that, and I, I I wish more people had that philosophy. That's excellent. I like that a lot. The um, 
Vicky, you're going to have to weigh in here at some point. You know that. I'm not just going to ignore you. Yeah, the jewelry budget goes back up after the airplane goes away. <laughs> yeah, my jewelry budget has been completely washed Severe. out. <laughs> <laughs> Severely diminished. <laughs> you don't even get to see the uh, Tiffany catalogs anymore, right? They oh. get they get tossed. Oh, <laughs> right in the garbage. So as his co-pilot, mm-hmm. when you're watching the situation, and you, you do you most of the time sit up front with him? All the time. Excellent. Excellent. And I think, did we do a pitch hitter course with her? No. We have not, but that's very much. So when I come back in the next summer for recurrent, um, I, it's absolutely on the agenda. We, we watched a couple of uh, people we met at the, the recent CJP convention uh-huh. that was this summer. We, we were incredibly lucky in about the time we were buying the plane and getting started training with you. Um, yeah, the they're CJP, a great, great group of it's people. It's a great group of people, and we talked to a lot of the, the women, and there was a pinch hitter course actually in the aircraft. Oh, nice. That, that a couple of people we got close to did. And it, look, it's just a, That's Jetaviva that's doing that, I think? Uh, Jetaviva was one of the big sponsors, okay. but, but Citation Jet Pilots is an organization. They had, um, it, was, it was amazing to go to, they had 400 pilots yeah. and 130 aircraft. I mean, oh, it, yeah, was, it was packed. Yeah. yeah, it was packed. Colorado Springs, it was, it was quite an it's event. It's a great organization. Always, yeah, it always really, has been. You know, for and people, what they're doing to the industry too, from a safety standpoint. Colin and I were just talking about it, that you know they're they're driving up the the six month. You know, giving yep. you if you guys come in and do recurrence at six months, we're, we're you know we'll elevate you to gold status. And the insurance companies are loving that. Yeah. Of well, Charlie Charlie Precord, I mean, this guy is a gift to our industry, right? He's ex shuttle pilot, safety. I mean, expert for sure. And, uh, I and once just, had a coffee maker that wasn't working. <laughs> does, that, does that count? Yeah, there you go. He's he's he was positively brilliant. So yeah. you know, I've always been a fan of learning from others' mistakes. If I can read about what they did wrong and try and avoid doing that myself, I, I, there's no there's no magic about what we do. We're all going to make some mistakes. Yeah. You hope they're small enough and stay within the envelope of safety so you can recover from them. Which, right. w- frankly, we worked on yesterday with our approaches in and out of some severe weather. Right. Um, I love the way they think about that and some of the NTSB reporting that CGAP watches and sort of translates into the citation community, right. we found incredibly valuable. And that's why we got, you know, the the jet of, or the, the um, CGAP uh, pitch hitter course would be great, but it's just great. They teach you how to land, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. I want to use, I want to do that. I had the same course two years ago. In the Meridian. In the Meridian. Oh, brilliant. And it was the best thing I ever did. It yeah. was, I. Really and, raises the confidence level too. And what I miss about the panel in the yeah. meridian versus the panel in the cj i don't have the exact same thing on both sides yeah, yeah i we, miss having the dual panel i can watch everything here right, instead right. of having to look over there you know it's just that's well, you just gotta one drag him out of the seat yeah there well, you go well you know the lady that taught the course a couple of years ago said if he falls forward you have to get him off the yoke so i say get yourself some bungee cords bungee him back off the yoke tie him up and you fly the plane or we could go. just use the shoulder harnesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seems a little extreme. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> she has Meridian, an S&M background well, or something. Well, Meridian didn't have shoulder harnesses. Ah. Yeah. ah this okay. one does, though, and this I wear them all does, the time. So the good news is I'll them. be out of your way, dear. Right. I won't have to buy any bungee cords. <laughs> well, just show her where the lock is on the shoulder harnesses. There you it's go. right here on the back of the chair. You just click it into position click and it locks right. it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but that's that's why I said that is, is we have quite a few folks that have their, uh, their spouses go through those pinch hitter courses. Um, just from a confidence standpoint, and you actually learn how to land the airplane. You know, yeah. we can do it in the sim. The airplane's great too, for obvious reasons. You get the, the you know the real world environment. But I think even doing both of them are great, because believe it or not, getting back to our original comment, the simplicity of these aircraft 
you just got to put the gear down, stay slow. You'll 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 get there. You know, you can literally do nothing, and this airplane will almost land itself. Just keep it on autopilot. Yes, put and we saw down. it too. We were we were talking about it, and you, it's all over YouTube now. The new Garmin Autoland. Yeah, it's being tested. It's amazing. Whole, here we go. Yeah. Just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You guys are awesome. Start yeah. to finish. You push a button and it just lands. Yeah, it's good. All right. It's good. That might be outside our price range, but 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 <laughs> everybody's right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They're gonna have to figure something out. But yeah, I always thought that the auto throttles and some of the stuff we had at the airlines just never really transitioned over to the corporate world. Yeah. And uh, you know, we'll have to just as I was talking about the magenta stuff, we'll probably have to break some bad habits with that. Yeah. You know, doing the auto land sequence. But that's that's exciting stuff. You yeah. Know, to, to be around and be a, a part of the industry when that stuff's happening. So most of the time you're sitting next to him. Yes. And what uh, what are your responsibilities? Uh I get up after an hour or so and getting something to drink and to eat. <laughs> No, I watch the. I do that too. Yes, but I, yes. I'm constantly watching the gauges, and then when we're up high enough and we're flying, I'll read the newspaper. Brilliant. No, that's okay. And that's I'm a proof. Listening. I'm listening to frequency changes. So, no, I like being up front. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's much tighter than in the meridian. Mm -hmm. So you know, every once in a while, I have to get up and go back and I stretch. But other than that, no, I'm I'm listening and paying attention. She's backing up altitude changes and backing up frequency changes on the radios, and you know some of the. You know, it, with the workload, there's a lot going on, and yep. it's just nice to have another pair of eyes, another pair of ears. Yep. And often, particularly in the heavy workload, so final approach checklists and stuff like that. So having all that That's handy. That's very handy. Yeah, yeah, super handy. Excellent. You, any desire to go any further? No. No. I don't have the disposition for it. No. Nope. You, you'd be surprised. <laughs> That's that's the move upgrade plan, dear. How about a CJ3 with both of us qualified? I have to go back to work. A global. Yeah, there you go. You're, you're short-sighted. Global. You guys need a global. CJ3 will work fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, really, I really appreciate you guys coming in, having a chat. You know, we don't get a chance to chat with folks like you very often, so it's I really appreciate it and um, look forward to seeing you. And I, I hope you guys uh, have enjoyed your new ride. It sounds like you are. It sounds like you're going to get at least a couple more years out of this. And Yeah. I appreciate you coming in and chatting with us. So it, it, it's an absolute pleasure. And I know, uh, you know, a number of your listeners are, are probably in some varying place along their journey of either wishing they were flying or flying something. The, the, the sad reality is no matter what you're flying, there's always something you wished you had. Yeah. Uh, my <laughs> boss and I joke all the time that the best plane you're ever going to have is the one you're flying today. Yeah, that's true. Um, that doesn't mean you don't keep dreaming about what's next. And, and I would say, um, you know, picking a partner who can help you with transition, help you with training and staying sharp, which you know you and the entire team here at Loft have done a great job Thank of. You. And there Appreciate are certainly it. others out there from a training point of view, but one of the things that, that, that I think you and the team here talked to me about long before I started, um, this is part of a family and it takes a village to get good at doing what it is Vicki and I are trying to do because single pilot flying of an aircraft of this capability is a real workload. As hard as it gets. And it's, look, it's, the reality is there was a great article I saw by Mac McClellan recently about flying and single pilot risk. And, and the reality is to, to, to think there isn't a higher element of risk in single pilot flying is just naive. Oh, yeah. That's ridiculous. I think how you make the judgments in the environment where you are choosing to be a single pilot and taking on that risk of not having a right seat pilot that's paying attention um, is, is what you ought to be careful about and how much weather risk you take and how much time take and how much sleep you had. Those things pile up and become cumulative. Oh, and yeah. so um, having a group of instructors here who gave me a lot of practical advice as well as great training, 
was uh, was enormously valuable on my journey. That's great. Yeah, and what you're talking about too is is already being implemented in the 135 side and 121 for many years is just risk management, yep. you know, and running through all the scenarios that you talked about and seeing what kind of a score you come up with to see if today's going to be a safe flight. Yep. I use this example all the time for our clients, and it's not to show off. It's to, it's to let them understand the level of what we're talking about. I do this for a living. Every single day I get up and I, I uh, you know, fly in the sim, teach every single day. This is what I do in the citation series. And the, on the occasions that I get to fly the airplane up to Bozeman and I'm on the arc in the weather, in the snow, I'm at capacity. If anything goes wrong right there, I got my hands full. I'm yeah. in trouble. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be asses and elbows trying to get this thing fixed. And I don't say that to show off. What I say is, is that you folks have to understand that at the level that you can get, which is doing this every single day, you'll still have areas in an airplane where you're going to hit capacity and the single pilot Holy moly, a testament to the equipment, a testament to the environment, and a testament to the last thing that you said, which is please make good decisions. Yeah. You know, if you've got a 12 hour day and you're going to back it up with eight hours going home, that sounds like a really bad idea. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that's that's that risk management, I think, that, that comes into play. So th there is a sharp subject that would have, God, would have done me a world of good if you want to make it as another podcast at some stage. Um, which is the very narrow decision about, okay, you're flying a turboprop, life is really wonderful, why? What did you think about, or what are the different decision factors? What did you worry about? What, how long did it take you to get that done? How did you find a plane? Which aircraft did you think about evaluating that you could move into? You could do 20 minutes on that. And for the move up customer, that is kind of where I was 18 months ago or 12 months ago. Because this is what I was struggling with when I came so, down and picked So Richard just to Burton. circle back around, I mean, that what you just said is essentially how did you make the decision to leave your turboprop? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So t tell me about the journey. You, you could start it if you wanted. Where did you start? And that's a two-minute discussion of, look, I started flying for work. I, I learned how to fly in a Mooney. I rapidly progressed to what I consider to be a safe single-engine aircraft, which was a turboprop. Right. But the reality is there's nothing quite like two engines. And so as I thought about that next move up, you could ask, well, so, so why did you do that? Was it was it ego? Was it I'm asking. speed? Was it <laughs> we'll go into all of that? And yeah. it literally could be 10 or 15 minutes or as long as no, you want. No, we're doing it right now. Good. <laughs> no, keep talking. Keep talking. Yeah, I don't, make, I don't need those answers. No, no, yeah, so, so, yeah, so what is uh, essentially then, what is the, I mean, your decision-making process on that, what was it? So it, it was interesting, right? I was a very happy almost thousand hour turboprop guy in a Meridian. And Vicki and I had the plane we needed. It filled most of our mission needs with perhaps the exception of going to the East and East Coast, going cross country. But the reality was we were super happy turboprop flyers. And in many ways, the, 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 the key decision was, why are we changing? Why is this something we need to do? Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of late in our career and why? And the reality is, it's because there is there is an allure of flying a jet. There is a safety factor of two engines Without versus question. one. There is an enormously better environmental experience inside the aircraft from a noise point of view, from a pressurization point of view. And so what we decided was, if we're going to do this, now is the time. And we and we we had to hunt because the reality is it's measurably more expensive. Mm -hmm. It's also um, more difficult to manage as, yes. a, as an owner operator. As you touched on, yeah. yeah as an owner operator, it's it, it's actually hard to do. What made you make the decision not to hire a management company? Um, Just expense? Yeah, I would say uh, a combination. I'd say expense plus the reality is we like managing that piece of it ourselves. It Got keeps it. us connected to the plane, 
And the idea of just sort of flying a plane that somebody's taking care of for us is not quite personal enough. And so I clean my own plane. There's no detail guy cleaning the plane. It's me up on a ladder. I like doing Brilliant. that. It makes yeah. it feel like our plane. Mm-hmm. And so we decided not to do that. And, and, uh, and frankly, it kept the cost down. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. And that's, I think a lot of folks will struggle with that um, just for that reason. But, you know, that's the, the, the level of safety, which is exactly how the airplane is certified too. You know, when you're talking about FAR 23 versus 25, 25 being incredibly safe, you know, you got to be able to show this thing can climb out at, you know, 1.3 climb gradient on one engine. You guys got to prove that in order to get certified. Well, they yep. used all that same criteria for the CJ, even though it's certified under 23, which, you know, as I describe in ground school, look, I don't care what happens today. You're in good shape. Yeah. All of the factors have been taken into into account. You know, you can stop, you can go, you can climb out, you can get out of the clouds. Everything that could happen to you today, they've taken into account and given you numbers for, and that's really nice. One of the trickiest parts of our decision as we were on the journey, and this was probably 18 months before we decided to pull the trigger and let's just go do this, was, okay, what plane do I belong in, right? You know, so we, we thought, Carefully, because there are some options now. There, yeah. are, there are choices, right? <laughs> yeah. You can end up with a Mustang, which ends up with, on the plus side, being you know avionics more sophisticated and later FADEC, which is which could be a big advantage. Right. But the reality is, the CJ dollar for dollar for us turned out to be the right aircraft. It's it, for everybody. Yeah, it, that's a great, <laughs> it's a great it's a airframe. Great plane. And, and I have to tell one you, one of the reasons we picked the Sim, it's a it's a wonderful airplane. Cessna hit it out of the park on this one. They really did, and and, and particularly our plane with the Tamaracks. Yep. We we were parked on the ramp yesterday, uh, right next to a CJ four, which you know, that's outside what I need ha- need to have for my mission, and you know, I'm not ready to fly one tomorrow. It is remarkable how beautiful the aircraft remains. And our aircraft's, you know, almost 20 years old. Yeah. It is just gorgeous from a ramp presence point of view. It's a beautiful aircraft. And I got was, those pictures you sent. Those are yeah. great. Those are awesome. And it was designed very much with a pilot like me in mind. Um, the plane we looked hardest at as an alternative was the Phenom 100. Yes. And the reality was I couldn't get past the risk curve of, you know, fly-by-wire brakes that were having challenges. Mm-hmm. A little bit narrower envelope from a forgiveness point of view. Beautiful plane as well. And Not the quite C- the performance of the CJ no, either. Yeah. No, and, and the CJ just came out as a plus on all fronts. Yeah. And and there's more training capability. There's more pilots to help fly it. And uh, when I needed a mentor pilot, and the reality is we, we ended up definitely with the right plane. It was interesting on that journey, um, managing the logistics of, okay, how does this actually work, right? I mean, who do I talk to when something's wrong? How do I find out the answers to questions? And um, I would say that was the discovery that I spent time on before I pulled the trigger and bought a plane. Excellent. Yeah, that's a that's a very macro view of it down to the micro, which is excellent. Nicely done. Nicely done. Well, now you don't have to come back. Oh, she can't hear me anymore. Yeah. She... <laughs> oh, I can hear you. I know. Anyway, thanks to you and the team for the help. I'll be back for recurrent soon. I look forward to it. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Vicki.